We're in a series on the book of Revelation, as you know. I haven't been uh, preaching the last couple of weeks. It's always awesome, by the way. I just love, uh, love our, uh, the team we have here. Amazing people. Amazing. You guys and volunteers, but amazing people we have on staff. By the way, I had someone asking me today, this background for Revelation, uh, Landon Getz, who's one of our creative guys uh, here on staff, he actually made this whole thing from scratch. And if you pay attention there's meaning in absolutely everything. Uh, so again, just another, another example of people using their gifts and abilities and talents uh, for Jesus. Just uh, really amazing. Um, but anyway, uh, the last couple of weeks, we had Chris Puhatch there last week, which was awesome. And, and Tom the week before making fun of me and talking about how he'd get through the Bible so fast if he was the preacher here and all this sort of stuff. I just don't know what he'd do when he was done. <laughs> Why are you in such a hurry, Tom, to get through the Bible? But anyway... Um, I'm, I'm actually doing a chapter a week. I feel that's pretty good for the book of Revelation. And uh, we're going to do all of chapter 6, basically, uh, today. But just to set the scene again, remember uh, chapters 4 and 5, uh, 6 is a part of that. So don't see this as completely disconnected from uh, chapters 4 and 5. But remember chapters 4 and 5, John gets caught up into heaven. He sees this heavenly vision. There's the throne. God's on it. And uh, God is holding his, in his hand his scroll. And the scroll represents, it's not just a prophecy, it's actually God's end time plan. It's his plan for conquering Satan's kingdom and bringing his kingdom to earth, which is what we all want. But this scroll is sealed with seven seals, as we found uh, there in the last message in chapter 5. And in chapter 6, Jesus is going to open those seals so that the scroll can finally be opened and his kingdom uh, can be brought to, it, it's open for this kingdom to be brought to earth. So I'm going to read 11 verses from this chapter, and then we'll pray, and then we'll work our way through it. But let's read here the words of uh, the scripture, Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb, that's Jesus, uh, opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And then he opened the second seal. I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, which is a day, which was a, a roughly equivalent to a day's wages in those days. So in other words, this is a severe famine. You could work all day and, and not barely get food. You wouldn't have nearly enough food to feed yourself or your family. Um, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Why don't you bow your heads with me and close your eyes, and let's pray to the author of this book, Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, who has died for our sins, so we can live forever with you if we accept you. 
Lord Jesus, these words are supposed to draw us closer to you. They're supposed to encourage us. And they're supposed to raise us to a whole new level of worship here at this church. I pray that you would do all of those things, that we'd be more confident than ever in who you are and in your word. In your precious and powerful name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. amen. Now, some of you might be here today and you might be wondering, I mean, some of you are here and you're going, I've just been so looking forward to Revelation. Others of you are in, struggling with various things in your lives and you wonder, what on earth is this going to have any practical sense? I see horses and riders and slaying and famine, but what does this have to do with my marriage? What does this have to do with the stuff I'm going through? And one of the things I want you to see as we go throughout this book of Revelation is uh, that Revelation actually has a pastoral heart. And in the first half of this message, I have to do some teaching stuff, okay? I'm going to have to show you some things because there's so much imagery and symbolism and patterns in the book of Revelation. I've got to show you those things so you just kind of know your way around the room, that you're not feeling confused. But in the second half of the message, I want to show you some of the heart that comes out in this chapter, and it's applicable to all of us today, wherever you are. And so uh, hopefully you all picked one up. And if you didn't, I want you just to get up right now and go and get one. But there's a little handout, because I can't get it all on the PowerPoint today, but there were handouts at all of the entrances on the tables, okay? And uh, they've got stuff on the front and the back. Uh, because I couldn't get everything on the PowerPoint, don't be embarrassed right now to just stand up, even if you're in the middle of the row, and work your way to the out, and then, and then go and get one. It'll help you, and it'll help me, so I don't have to try to fit it all on the PowerPoint. But I want to start this message by taking a drink of water first. I am desperately going to try and keep my voice to the end of the 11. Um, but uh, I want to just start by doing a little comparison because, again, a lot of people can't get to the pastoral heart of Revelation because they're, they're overwhelmed with the information and the imagery. So I want to help, I want to help you just get, just get used to the room, as it were, get used to the context. So the book of Revelation, of course, uh, probably one of the most famous things about the book of Revelation is these 21 judgments. You've got these seven seal judgments and then seven trumpet judgments and then seven bowl judgments. And again, because people sometimes get so overwhelmed, they can't actually get what they're supposed to get out of Revelation because they're, they're, they, don't, they don't know how to feel their way around all the, the imagery and the prophecy and the, and the patterns and the things that are going on. So on the front page of your handout there, I've just got a little comparison of the, the seals, trumpets, and bowls. And I want to take a few minutes at the beginning of this message just to go over some of that. So once you get comfortable with how Revelation is set up, then we can get into what Revelation is trying to say to us in all of its uh, chapters and including today's chapter. So um, I want to compare the seals a little bit to the trumpets and bowls here in the first part of this message. The, seal, the seven seal judgments are uh, quite different from the trumpets and bowls. Okay, and that'll be important as we, as we go through this message. And there's a, many different ways in which they're different, but I'm, I'm just going to go through three briefly here at the beginning. Uh, first of all, when you compare them, as you'll see in that chart there, uh, the seals describe events that are more generalized events. They're not specific. The trumpets and bowls are very specific events that are prophesied. The seals uh, describe kind of more general, generalities. War and famine, and disease, and persecution. What I mean by generalities is there's no morning when you could wake up one morning and say, oh, you know, seal two, that's the one about war. That just happened. War is always going on, right? 
War has been going on throughout all of history. It's going on today. It was going on when, when John made these prophecies. It was going on before John made these prophecies. And it will be going on until Jesus returns and puts an end to it all. And that's what the seals are more general like that. They prophesy things like war and famine and disease. Let me put just a couple of examples up on the PowerPoint so you can see them. For example, seal number two. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So again, that's a, that's a very general thing, to take peace from the earth. There's no moment in time when you could say that got opened up. There's, I mean, peace hasn't been on the earth the whole time. There won't be peace until Jesus comes back. There's constantly been war, okay? These are the kinds of things that the seals talk about. Seal number four, uh, for example... Uh, put that one up there as well. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. Okay? Now, incidentally, I always have to do this in every message on Revelation, because I never want you to forget that everything in Revelation is in the Old Testament. And I could do, I mean, we could spend hours and hours and hours in every single chapter looking at all the Old Testament stuff. I'll just show you one quickly here. This fourth uh, seal is almost directly quoted out of Ezekiel chapter 14, just to show you this. Ezekiel 14 verse 21 says, For thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. So again, we've got this Old Testament tie. But again, I want you to notice all four of these are things, they're not specific events, they're general things and judgments and terrible things that are going on in, in the earth all the time. Sword, famine, there's famines going on around the world right now, and there always have been, and we look forward to the day when Jesus is going to put an end to them, okay? Uh, wild beasts, now in our culture today, in modern times, we don't worry about getting eaten by wild beasts, but uh, there are places in the world, even today, where many people still every year are killed by snakes are where people are afraid of large predators. Certainly in the day, in the Bible times when these things were written, there was many people on the earth that worried about wild beasts and of course pestilence being diseased. Now I just want to contrast that a little bit. Again, the first part of this message, I'm helping you guys get a little more familiar with the book of Revelation, okay, as we're getting into this now. If we compare these sorts of prophecies in the, trump, in the uh, seals with the trumpets and bowls, we're going to find that the trumpets and bowls uh, more talk about very specific things, okay? So let's just look at two quick examples. Trumpet number two, for example. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain. Now notice something like a great mountain. He's, saying, he's not saying it was a great mountain. He's seeing something cataclysmic, and he, he just can't, he, he doesn't know what it is, right? But the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So now that's a very specific event. And commentators argue about what exactly it describes. Is it some kind of a, you know, could it be a meteorite hitting the earth? Could it be some kind of mega volcano? We don't know. It's, it's just describing a, a cataclysmic event of some sort, okay? And, uh, but one thing we know is it's not going on right now, okay? It's not like every day there's, you know, mountains getting thrown into the sea. One morning we'll wake up and either this event has happened or it hasn't. Do you see the difference? With the seals, they're always going on. With the trumpets, this either ha has happened or it hasn't, okay? Trumpet number three would be another example. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. 
The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So again, these are, we don't know necessarily what these are. And lots of people and commentators and Christians over the years have made all kinds of speculations as to what these are. I don't think it's possible to nail down exactly what they are, but whatever they are, they're, they're cataclysmic events, and when they happen, it will, it will be obvious, okay? So these are, these are massive, uh, massive events, okay? But they've either happened or they haven't, all right? So that's one difference between the seals and the trumpets and bowls, very important. Uh, second, a second difference that you need to know as we go into the rest of the book is that the seals are separate, even in the way John tells them. The seals happen prior to the trumpets and bowls, and then the point is they open up the scrolls so that the trumpets and bowls can happen. And the reason we know this is when the seventh seal opens, it isn't a judgment itself. The seventh seal opening isn't its own thing. It's just the trumpets appearing and the trumpets start blowing. Okay, I'll show you this. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, okay? And as I've said before, this is why uh, many commentators have speculated that this is how we know that men get to heaven half an hour before women. Um, but anyway, <laughs> verse 2. <laughs> I never get tired of that one. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them, the first angel blew his trumpet. So the seventh seal isn't a thing itself. The seventh seal is just now the scroll is open and the trumpets and bowls can happen. Does that make sense? Okay, so there's, we got these seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, but the seven seals, and remember, this totally makes sense because if you have this scroll and the scroll represents the, God's plan to conquer Satan's kingdom and bring his kingdom onto earth, but the scroll can't be open until the seven seals, as we talked about, have been broken. Okay, so it's not fully open. The plan's not happening until the, until the seals uh, have been uh, opened. So that's really important, all right? And then the third thing I just want to point out, and this is going to lead us into Matthew 24, which is really an important part of this message and for this whole series, in fact, and I think you'll, it'll be important for you, but um, parallels... The trumpets and bowls, if we look at some par parallels, which we'll get into later in this series, I'll just mention it here. I won't talk about it anymore. The trumpets and bowls have many parallels to the plagues of Egypt. And that is not an accident. Okay? Uh, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he's writing the book of Revelation, there's no question the parallel is what God did for the Israelites, bringing them out of Pharaoh's kingdom and out of bondage and out of Egypt in the Old Testament. That is the parallel for what Jesus is the, is the, you know, in that case, sort of the second Moses. And Jesus is going to lead his people out of the kingdom of darkness, out of Satan's kingdom, out of the Antichrist kingdom, if you will, and uh, into safety. And so the trumpets and bowls are many ways like the plagues of Egypt. And we'll see that as we get further into the series. The seals are not like the plagues of Egypt. The seals, and I've been talking over and over again about how so much of Revelation is found uh, in the Old Testament, interestingly enough, the seals are not found in the Old Testament. They actually closely parallel a New Testament passage, a uh, prophecy of Jesus from Matthew chapter 24, which of course makes sense because John was with Jesus and he heard Jesus preach that message. But there are a number of very, very interesting parallels uh, between this, the, the first uh, five, well, actually even more than that, but the first bunch of seals and the birth pains that Jesus predicted in Matthew 24. 
And now, because Matthew 24 is such an important passage, I'm going to go there, I'm going to spend a few minutes there now in this message, because it's important for your overarching understanding of prophecy in general and the book of Revelation, right? So we're going to go to Matthew 24, and I'm actually going to read you a bunch of it. I just want you to get exposed to a whole bunch of scripture today, all right? And just before I do that again, I'm going to drink water, and hopefully I don't need to take a bathroom break in the middle of this message. If I start pacing really quickly and erratically, you'll know I'm suffering. But anyway. <laughs> Matthew 24, verse 3. Uh, Jesus' disciples are going to ask him a really, really good question. And then he's going to give them a really, really good answer. It's one of his second longest sermons in all the... Go- not one of his second. It is his second longest sermon in the gospel, second only to the Sermon on the Mount. And the disciples asked him this, verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay, good question, right? Good question. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They want to know, Jesus, when are you going to set up your kingdom here on earth? Like, that's that's what we need. We're all suffering and sin and death and all this junk and evil in, the, in their day. They're, you know, they're suffering under, the Roman, under Roman rule. When are you going to come bring your kingdom? This is the thing we've always been looking forward to is peace on earth and justice and goodness. And what's really interesting to me is how Jesus answers this question very differently than how many Christian leaders and teachers and writers answer it today. Many Christian writers and leaders and teachers today, if anybody asks them a question and they say, you know, when is Jesus coming back? They say, whoa, 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 don't, don't get into that. That's weird. And what you're going to see in this answer is Jesus does not tell the disciples, whoa, 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 that's weird. Let's, more t- let's focus on day-to-day practical things. Let's not get bizarre. And the reason is because Jesus coming back is actually supposed to be the core. That's the number one. That's our hope. That's the whole thing that's supposed to keep us going as believers is Jesus is coming back. That is the thing. If we love him as we say we do and sing to him and worship week after week, the thing we should be looking forward to the most is the day when he's going to come back and we're going to get to live with him forever. That's not a weird question. It's not a weird desire. It's supposed to be the core of everything. In fact, if we look, in the old, if we look in, uh, the, throughout the Bible... The Bible is very clear, and I'm going to take you, just quickly, we'll just jump out of Matthew 24, just a moment, to Hebrews 11, because I want to show you um, that throughout the Bible, when the Bible talks about how do the saints persevere, one of the key ways the Bible says, for how do, how do God's people persevere through hard things? And there's different answers to that question, obviously, but one of the key ones that the Bible talks about, how do God's people persevere when they see wickedness and wickedness and wickedness and wickedness all over the world? How, how do God's people persevere when they look in the newspapers day after day and we see murder and sex slavery and children starving and rape and war? How do we, you know, many people get bitter. They look at that and they go, this is so wicked. How can God allow this to keep happening? Or how do we endure through Personal trials that are very difficult, physical pain, health issues, loss of loved ones, struggles in a family or in a marriage. How do we endure through these things? Now, 
This isn't the only answer, but certainly one of the key answers. How did the saints of old not get bitter when they went through hard things? I'll tell you why. It's because they were looking forward. They, did, they weren't looking for their best life now. They were looking for a kingdom that is to come. And we find this explicitly spelled out in Hebrews 11, which is an accounting of the saints. Specifically in this chapter, it's talking about the Old Testament saints, and it says this about them. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised not having received. They didn't get all the good stuff in this lifetime. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, the saints of old did not view themselves as trying to have their best life now. They viewed themselves as strangers and exiles on earth. Now that's a totally different mindset than what a lot of Christians have today. Strangers and exiles means they, were, they never got totally comfortable here in this world. They, they don't, because this world wasn't where their hopes were. They were looking for something else. Let's keep reading. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are what? Seeking a homeland. Something else. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Why? For he has prepared for them a city. He has prepared for them and for us a city. A day is coming when Jesus is physically going to return to earth and bring a city to earth here, and he's going to set up his kingdom physically here on earth. And at that point, there's going to be no more brokenness and no more dying and no more hurt. And all of your questions are going to be answered and all of your hurts are going to be healed. And in the moment, lots of Christians get hung up on the question why. Now, first of all, by the way, it's not bad to ask why. We're human. We ask why. It's not bad. God's never mad at you when you ask why. When it becomes a problem is when you get hung up on why. Because the fact of the matter is, in this lifetime, we often don't get answers to why. I know there's some good apologetic answers, and those are good to study too. Why does God allow evil? Why does God allow suffering? There's some good apologetic answers out there. But when you actually go through real tough suffering yourself, and you wonder, why would God allow this? There often isn't a good answer. And the saints of old didn't have good answers. So how did they get through without getting hung up and without getting bitter? It's because they knew, I'm trusting. I can't understand why it's so terrible here on earth and why I have to go through this. But one thing I know, I just have to make it through this when I, because there's a city. He's prepared for me a city and there's a city coming. There's a country coming. There's a king coming. And in that place, I'm going to live forever and there'll be no more hurting or pain or sorrow anymore. They were looking forward to something else. Now, they weren't looking forward to it in such a way that they disengaged from life here, but that was the hope that kept them from being bitter. So anyway, back to Matthew uh, 24. The disciples asked Jesus this question, okay, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus doesn't say that's a dumb question, only weird, you know, unbalanced Christians ask that. It's a perfectly good question, and so he gives them a good answer. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. Now, why would he start by saying, see that no one leads you astray? Because they were expecting him to do it right away. That's the whole thing. They, hey, you're the Messiah. You're the son of God. You're finally here. This is what we've been waiting for. Uh, they're just surprised he hasn't done it yet. Like, when are you going to beat the bad guys? Like, Herod's a really bad guy who's doing really, really terrible things. I mean, he killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem. That's just a couple of decades previous. 
So when are you going to set up your kingdom now? And the first thing Jesus says is, see that no one leads you astray. Why? Because he already knows it's going to be a long time. It's not going to be in their lifetime. They're expecting it right now. And he says, see that no one leads you astray. For many, now he's going to tell them a bunch of things. So here's his answer. How are we going to know the sign of your coming and when the age is to come? See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. By the way, this has been true in history, is it not? He's not just talking about many people coming and saying, I'm Jesus, even though there have been people that have done that. He's talking about any false Messiah, false prophet, all the false religions that have sprung up since Jesus was on the earth. Muhammad, okay? Buddha, some of these people, okay? I'm not, I'm not saying people are bad for, for following them. They're deceived, but Jesus is saying, if many false Christs will arise and lead many astray. We've got hundreds of millions, even billions of people following False prophets, isn't that true? It's happened. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. It's not going to happen right away. Don't be deceived. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures. Not just the one who prays a little prayer. That's a great first step. But being saved means enduring. It means and, in, and you wouldn't have to endure if it wasn't hard sometimes. Like, we should actually expect that. We should fortify new believers when they get saved. You, it's, this, is, this is great. You're taking a good first step. But actually, you're going to have to endure. Your best life isn't now. Your best life is coming. You're going to have to endure to the end. That's part of what you've just said yes to. And then we find this very important event. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So now I'm going to read you a few more verses yet, but let's just quickly sum up what we have so far. The disciples say, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus does not give them a weird answer. He does not give them a complicated answer. He gives them a very simple answer. He says, it's not going to be right away. There's going to be false, you know, Christs and prophets and religion. There's going to be uh, uh, disease and famine and earthquakes and war and there's going to be persecution, all of this. And we see all this happen. Then he finally gets to a specific thing. Right in verse 14 he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will go to all the ethnic groups and then the end will come. Now that's a very important understand, under, you know, statement for him to make. And then the end will come. Okay, The gospel is going to make it to all the ethnic groups in the world. The Great Commission will get completed. Then the end will come. Now he's going to give us another specific event. Verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, I'm not going to take tons of time to get into that. That's coming out of Daniel 9.27. A horrible, blasphemous thing. Okay? This, you know, it's talked about, Paul talks about in Thessalonians, this man of perdition, what we would call the Antichrist, but this man of perdition will set himself up in the temple of God and proclaim himself to be God and demand people to worship him. Paul talks about it. Okay? Something is going to happen. We don't know all the details, but it will be obvious. But someone's going to commit some kind of abominable desolation in Jerusalem and demand worship, okay? Jesus says, let the reader understand. Pay attention, okay? A specific event. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, 
A lot of Christians don't pay attention to this so much because uh, we're, we think the Bible is Western-centered. But remember, the Bible uh, very Israel-centered. Not that God, God loves all people, but the Bible itself is speaking in a specific place. Um, and uh, it's not saying everybody's supposed to flee when they see this. It's saying specifically people living in and around Jerusalem because this will be an awful, awful time for them. People living in and around Jerusalem when this event takes place need to flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no one will and never will be. That's a very sobering statement. When this specific event, the Great Commission is going to go to all the, you know, is going to be complete, all the, all the ethnic groups will hear about Jesus. Then there's going to be this specific event, this abomination of desolation, and then there's going to be this period of tremendous, terrible, awful tribulation. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now he's going to talk a little bit more about deception. Okay, then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. He keeps saying, pay attention. Reader, pay attention. I've told you beforehand. It's important that you know this. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And now here comes the, the climax. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. I, I want you to see how simple this answer is. Jesus is clear about everything and the sequence in which it occurs. When will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay? And he says, well, first, it's not going to be for a long time. There's going to be war and persecution and famine and disease. Then the Great Commission is going to get completed. That's specific. Then the abomination of desolation is going to happen. That's very specific in this time of terrible tribulation. And then what? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, he just tells us everything. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, here's why I wanted to read that big chunk of Matthew 24 for you here in this, in this message. As we're going through the book of Revelation, from time to time, some of you will feel overwhelmed by the, again, like I said before, the information and the imagery. I can't keep track of it all. What's all going on? Seals, trumpets, bowls. Oh, what's this, that? Um, I, don't, I can't keep track of it. I can't pay attention to it. You, you, you just feel overwhelmed by information and imagery. What I want you to remember is actually that God's end time plan is actually simple. Whenever you get overwhelmed in the book of Revelation, I want you just to go back to Matthew 24 and just look at Matthew 24 and remember that you don't have to remember all kinds of information. There is tremendous things that Revelation wants to speak to our hearts, but you don't have to remember all the imagery. Matthew 24 is Jesus' very concise, beautiful, wonderful answer of simplicity. There's just four things you have to remember. When they ask them, Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age? First of all, he says, birth pains. That's what we're living in right now. This lengthy period of time of war and persecution and famine and disease. We're living in that right now. That's the birth pains. Then he says, second, as I said before, second, the Great Commission gets completed. 
That's why we're motivated as a church. We are motivated by things like church renewal. That's, one, that's part of our contribution. Doing missions, strengthening the church around the world. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. When we finish that job, and, and for the first time in history, it could happen in our generation. Literally, it, it, it could very well happen in my lifetime. We are actually within reach. It could be 20 years. It could be 30. It could be less if it goes faster. But at the rate that we are... Uh, translating the Word of God into new languages and planting churches. It could very well be in the next couple of decades. It could be a little longer. I don't know, but we are very close. For the first time in church history, we are actually close. We're within arm's reach of completing the Great Commission. Jesus said, and then the end will come. I'm not saying it will come that day, and I'm not saying what day it's going to happen. I'm not saying I don't know what things could come to slow it down or, for that matter, speed it up. All I know is what Jesus said. And anyway, when the Great Commission uh, is completed, that's not necessarily the moment when Jesus comes back. After that, he then gives us a very specific event. He says, there will be this abomination of desolation and a time of terrible tribulation. Time of terrible tribulation. And then the fourth thing is what we're all looking forward to, which is Jesus returns. That's Jesus' answer. So whenever you get a little bit overwhelmed, you think, oh, I can't remember this all. You don't have to remember it all. Matthew 24 just sets it out for us absolutely beautifully, beautifully and powerfully. And as a church, we can live with urgency as we live in these times, just like the New Testament churches lived in. They lived with a sense of urgency. They had a desire to bring the gospel to all the nations so that they could see Jesus return. Much of the church has lost that sense of urgency. They have kind of a dull sense of Jesus' return being far off. And we need to always live with a sense of nearness, that it could be within our reach that Jesus could return. It's supposed to be what we're looking forward to. Anyway, oh, there's one last thing. I just want to finish off that passage with one thing, and we'll go back to Revelation. But Matthew 24, right at the end of that whole prophecy, Jesus then says this, and look what he exhorts us. He says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, this is Jesus making sure that we didn't miss the message. So also, when you see all these things. Um, I can't find where I am. You know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation, the generation that sees the Great Commission completed, okay? Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's Jesus. He is going to come back and set up his kingdom on earth. Amen? Amen? And that's an exciting thing. Now, you say, what does this have to do with Revelation chapter 6? Well, as I said before, interestingly enough, and if you, if you pull out those little handouts again that you uh, grabbed, and if I can find mine, I'm an absolute mess here tonight, or this morning. And if you go to the back side, uh, I've just put, and I, I put all that I could fit on a little sheet of paper, because I don't have time to go through all of this and spell it out for you. But there's no accident that the seals of Revelation closely follow even the order in which Jesus talked about the birth pains in Matthew 24. Jesus starts by saying, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. John's first seal is a, is a false Christ figure, this rider on a white horse. The second thing Jesus talks about, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, the second seal is, you know, this, the sword comes out, this rider comes out with a sword and takes peace from the, from the earth, and people are slaying each other. 
The third thing Jesus talks about in the birth pains is famines and earthquakes. Seal three is famine. Seal four is war, famine, disease, and wild beasts. The next thing Jesus talks about, verse nine, is believers being put to tribulation and to death. Seal five is martyrs crying out, and so on and so forth. The gospel goes to all nations in, in verse 14 in Matthew 24. Between seal six and seven, which we'll see in next week's message, we see people from every nation and tribe saved before the throne of God. So there's a definite parallel going on there, okay? Now you say, how, in light of that then, you, you told us at the beginning of this message uh, that this, is, this message is going to still apply to our lives today. On the one hand, it's going to expand our capacity to worship the Lord and give us an urgency that we actually want to see in return. Um, but how are we supposed to read this chapter in a way? Does it actually speak to us today? And I really believe it does. So how do we, how do we read this? And in order to get to that practical part, what we need to do is we need to ask ourselves, how do we read a chapter like Revelation chapter 6? And I think the first thing we need to do is try to put ourselves in the shoes of the original readers. Now, of course, when I say reader, I use that name, I use that word loosely. These people did not read. They didn't have, they didn't, most of them didn't have Bibles. Many of them did not read. They were hearing these letters spoken to them, but I'll just use readers because it just speaks to us where we are. It's an anachronism. But anyway, what would the original readers when they received this letter of Revelation, when they got to chapter 6, what would they have been thinking and feeling when they read these things? And I'll tell you what they would have been, when, would have been reading and feeling. First of all, in seal 1, when they re read about, uh, excuse me, yuck. Anyway, <clears throat> sorry. When they read seal number 1, and they see uh a rider on a white horse riding out to conquer, okay? Now, this is clearly a parody. It's not Jesus. Jesus is the lamb in this scene. Later, he's going to come on a white horse in chapter 19, conquering, and he's got king of kings and lord of lords tattooed on his thigh. But this is clearly is not Jesus. It's a different rider, a parody of Christ, kind of an antichrist kind of figure on a, on a horse, and he's riding out to conquer. When these first readers or hearers are hearing this and reading this, they're going, I know who that is. And they're seeing that as the Roman emperor. There's no question. They're going, I know, I know who that is. I know who that is. Who's conquering? Who's trampling on the earth right now? I know who that is. They're reading this as, that's the Roman empire. They get the CO2 and this, this uh, horse with the, with the sword and the slaying. And they're reading that and they're going, I know who that is. CO3 and famine. I want, I want to show you something very interesting there. Seal number three, when he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature, the third living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Of course, as I said before, that's, that is a, it, it's a, it's a, it's describing a, a severe famine. You would work all day and only be able to get a quart of wheat or three quarts of barley. Severe famine. Now, the part that's always kind of got me, and many people, is, what? But what's the last, so that first part, a quarter of wheat of denarius and barley for denarius, that's a famine. But what's this weird line at the end, and do not harm the oil and the wine? And what most of us don't realize is that uh, this is John putting in one of those little details that was just specific to his audience there in Asia. Remember, this is written to the churches in Asia. And just before Revelation was written, uh, uh, Emperor Domitian was, uh, he was a wicked, terrible 
emperor, and he, he instigated a number of persecutions against Christians. But anyway, in somewhere around 92 AD, right around the time when Revelation was written, um, so you have to understand how emperors work, uh, right? An emperor, and this is why, you know, so much wickedness has been done by powerful tyrants. And they sit in their office or in their throne room or whatever with their, with their bureaucratic helpers, and totally disconnected from the people, and they look at a map of their empire. So Domitian looks at the map of the empire at one point, and he's like, um, we've got we've to up the grain supply. We need more grain. How are we going to do that? Um, here's what we're going to do. We're gonna, there's the province of Asia, and uh, uh, we're going to just take... Can, the province of Asia was famous for wine, very famous for wine. Their vineyards and stuff, amazing. And he said, but we need more grain in the empire. We're not going to go there and see if the soil is suitable or nothing like that. Why would we do that? We're not going to see if this is feasible. We're just going to make a decree. Half the vineyards in the province of Asia must convert to grain this year. So forget about vineyard. You know, you've been planning. You've got all the implements for vineyards. You've got all the training and the learning. And you've grown up through generations doing vineyards. Half of them are to grain. Do it. Okay, now, first of all, that would have been an absolutely, utterly disastrous decree, but he made it. Now, usually in those days, people didn't resist the emperor because you could get in big trouble, but this degree, decree was so insane that the entire province of Asia was in an uproar. And they said, absolutely not. We can't do that. That's, that's nuts. Okay? We don't even know how to do that. How, how would we do that? It's not feasible. And in the end, he actually overturned his decree. But you see here, do not harm the oil and the wine. Okay? John's putting in a little thing and again, he's, he's, these people, when they're reading it, are not reading it as something totally disconnected from them. They are reading this as, I know who this is. I know who this is. I know what's going on. This applies to me. Now you say, okay, but then this really doesn't apply to us. Because what's your, are you saying that all the prophecies in Revelation were fulfilled in the Roman Empire? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I am saying it was applicable to them already. But one of the things you have to understand about prophecy in the Bible, and we'll see this in, in, in many other places throughout the book of Revelation, and this is the beauty of God and the power of God and God's word. Often we see examples in the Old Testament where he gives a prophecy and there's a short-term echo. There's a short-term fulfillment, but it's not the ultimate fulfillment. There's a short-term uh, this happens as an echo, as a foreshadowing, as a type of what the final fulfillment will, will be. There's many examples of that in Scripture. And this is another one of those examples where I actually believe that we have seen types and partial fulfillments of this at many different places, many different times in history. And there will be ultimate fulfillments as well. Okay? But I think there's been Christians throughout history in different places who have been able to read themselves in these same seals. I mean, I think about those Christians who were living in the Middle East in the 7th and 8th centuries. Do you know that the Middle East, when we think of the Middle East now, what religion do we think of? What, what religion do we think of when we think of the Middle East now? Islam, right? Do you know who was there first, hundreds of years before Islam? Christianity. In fact, the Middle East was the center of Christianity, okay, for centuries. And what happened? Muhammad and his armies swept through all the Middle East and crushed it all. And then not just Christians, but also many other people groups and cultures. That's just historical fact, okay? Um, so do you think when Christians living in the Middle East in the 7th and 8th centuries, do you think when they were reading Revelation 6, 
Do you think they might have pointed that and said, I know who that rider on the horse is that, that rides out to conquer and to trample? Do you think they read seal number two and he was given a sword to slay people and take, take peace from the earth? Do you think that would have felt relevant to them at that point? You bet. They would have read it and said, I know who that is. And they weren't wrong. They weren't wrong. There's echoes. This is how Satan's kingdom works. They weren't wrong. Third seal, famine. I mean, I think of, uh, and we could go through many examples, but just, you know, I think of the 20th century when communism marched out and spread out of almost nothing and spread all over Asia and Central Asia and Eastern Europe, you know, covering hundreds of millions of people. And do you think there was Christians in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s as communism spread and spread and spread and spread? It looked for a while there. Many people were afraid it would take over the whole world. Do you think they read in Revelation 6? Do you think there was persecuted, oppressed Christians anywhere? And when they looked at Revelation 6 and they saw and a rider goes out to conquer, do you think they thought to themselves, they read that, I know who that is. They could see it. And he was given a sword to slay and take peace. And they said, oh, I know who that is. And the third famine. Do you know how many famines the communists caused, killing literally tens of millions of people. They don't teach a lot of history anymore these days. A lot of people aren't aware of this. But for example, I'll just quickly, a little rabbit trail, and then we'll come back. It's just historical. It just brings some of the, these seals to life. Um, one of the things, uh, you know, in, in the Soviet Union, they caused multiple famines, and in China as well, they killed literally millions of people because they, they would, the, the party leadership and the bureaucrats would sit in an office far disconnected from the real world, and they would say, okay, we need to up factory production. We're going to take all these resources and put them into factories instead of into farms on the ground. And they would say, and everybody in this area is going to farm this crop, and everybody in this area is going to farm this crop. And they would manage it and organize it from an office. And they literally destroyed things. They literally caused famines that killed tens of millions of people. And then Mao and the Chinese communists did the same thing in China. Now, do you think any of those Christians living in those countries reading Revelation 6 and they see their government doing terrible things, and they read a quart of wheat for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine, and they're going, I know who this is. I know who this is. Fulfillment, Satan's kingdom, the power of God's word, and God is meeting them even in that, and ultimately there will be an ultimate fulfillment of these prophecies, because the birth pains will carry on until Jesus returns. But now let's move to seal number five. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And again, I recall the echoes of Matthew 24, right? Matthew 24, 9, paralleling this passage all along. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And now he says in verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now there's a couple of things. Imagine you were one of the literally tens of millions of Christians living under persecution and oppression right now today. And you read this. Or you're one of the, the hundreds of millions of Christians throughout history who have lived under oppression and fear. And you read this passage. And first of all, the first thing you notice that's encouraging is the souls of the martyrs are under the altar. They're in God's presence. And that's the first thing that's encouraging. Oh, they can take my life, but they can't take my soul. The moment they take me, the moment I'm gone, I'm with Jesus. So that's the first thing. That's comforting. But then the second thing, how healing this is, 
when they see the souls in heaven crying for justice. Because isn't there a part of all of us, and you don't have to be under persecution to, to desire this, but there's a part of all of us that looks at the wickedness and evil in this world and says, this isn't right. There needs to be justice. Now, at the same time, we're balancing it with, we've got to turn the other cheek and we've got to love our enemies and we've got to forgive. Jesus says that. So we, oh Lord, we love our enemies and we turn the other cheek and we do that. And we ask him to help us. But at the same time, there's a part of us that says there has to be justice. And if there isn't justice, our hearts, this is, this is breaking us. And, there, and the thing is, you should never feel bad. This passage affirms that our desire for justice is actually not a bad thing. It's because we're made in the image of God. He is a just God. Of course we want justice. Now, in the meantime, we need to forgive and turn the other cheek. We need to do that. But the desire for justice and to pray for justice is echoed in this scripture, and it's a tremendous encouragement. But then he says this. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Rest a little longer. Now, here's the thing. I want to talk now not just to people who are being persecuted, but you don't need to be persecuted to be in pain and to want justice. You can be going through all kinds of injustice and suffering in this life. And your heart is crying out for justice. Your heart is crying out for resolution. Why? It is not fair I have to go through what I'm going through. It is not right that I have to go through that my spouse is putting me through what they're putting me through or that my family is going through or that this thing has happened. Or why would God let me go through this? And our hearts are crying for justice. Our hearts are crying for resolution. Now I want you to notice what happens here. These souls are crying out for justice. And I want you to notice that Jesus does not immediately give it to them. He does not say, oh, Okay, here you go, and here comes the justice. That's what we want in our lives, isn't it? Make it stop. I've been hurting for too long. But Jesus doesn't tell them I'm going to make it stop right away. He says this, rest a little longer. Patience, Jesus says. Patience. Why patience? Because there's a city. He has prepared for us a city. Be patient a little longer, he says. Rest a little longer. I love that word rest. You know, when you get hung up on the why and that it's so unfair and I can't take this anymore, you start to get bitter. And Jesus says, you don't need to be bitter. Just be patient. See, you have to actually get through these things. We have to get through the seals. We have to get through the birth pains. We have to get through the judgments and the groaning, just like a woman has to get through. That's why Jesus called it birth pains. Has to get through labor to have the baby. In order for Jesus' kingdom to come onto earth, we have to get through the pain. So he says, rest a little longer because on the far side of this, put your hope in what is to come. Rest a little longer. Be patient. Until the number, and this is the final thing, and this is where I'll end, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who are to be killed as they themselves have been. Until the number of their brothers should be complete. God has a number in heaven. I don't know what that number is. You know, is it one billion? We should should be writing it down kind of like a lottery when we get to heaven. Someone wins something if they got it right, right? But he has a number. How many people get to die for my name? What is it? 600 million, 889,992? Or does it all have sevens? But he's got a number, and there won't be one less. 
and there won't be one more because he's absolutely sovereign. And it's not just about the number of martyrs. He's tying all kinds of things together, the number of martyrs, but he's tying this whole thing together where he's bringing the nation of Israel to a place where they will all willingly give their lives to him right at the end. And he's tying this thing together that the Great Commission is going to get completed so that every ethnic group has representation in heaven. And he's tying thousands of things together and weaving them all together so that at exactly the right moment, he is going to return and bring his kingdom back to earth. But the cool thing is he has a number, which means it's not, uh, nothing is out of his control. And in your life, he has a number. He's numbered your days. He's numbered your tears. These are all things in the Bible. He's numbered your hairs. I think he's numbered your pain. And you keep thinking, I can't take any more. And Jesus says, rest a little longer. There's a cap. And that cap is in my hands. Put your hope. There's a city coming. Amen? Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Lord Jesus, I want to do two things in this prayer. Number one, we want to stand in solidarity with our persecuted brothers and sisters all around the world right now. Millions upon millions of them in places that are horrible even to think about where they are oppressed and cannot come happily and freely to church like we did this morning. I think of our brothers and sisters who love you in North Korea, living under in, in almost incomprehensibly terrible, horrific conditions. Our brothers and sisters in China right now, many of them very afraid the government has really stepped up its persecution and tracking pastors and churches. Brothers and sisters in the Muslim world, Lord Jesus, and we cry out with them for justice. We stand in solidarity with them, and we ask you that when we get overwhelmed with our problems this week, would you remind us of them? And that our hope is in the world to come when you're going to put all this stuff to rest. And secondly, Jesus, it's not just about them around the world. I know we're not being persecuted, but we have our own issues, and we struggle with our own issues too. Some of us in here today need a touch from your spirit. We need to rest a little longer. We need a help to be patient. Thank you that you are in control and that you are sovereign. And we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.